Hello, my name is Parker, and welcome to the first episode of What I Love About Film. Specifically, today's episode, What I Love About Non-Conventional or Avant-Garde Films. Basically, for each topic, we'll have two episodes. One where I give you my thoughts, and one where I discuss it with someone else. As a preface, nothing here is meant to insinuate that if the films I mentioned here do not work for you, that makes you somehow stupid or unintelligent. I simply want to provide my perspective and experience on something that I really enjoy, and hope that perhaps it may help someone else enjoy something too. I am also not pretending to be the authority on any of these things that I'm talking about, or that I'm offering some novel new perspective, and if there's any mistakes or errors, I apologize right away. I'm just here to tell you my reasons for loving some specific stuff. And with that, let's get going. Diane, 11.30 a.m., February 24th. Entering the town of Twin Peaks. It's five miles south of the Canadian border, 12 miles west of the state line. I've never seen so many trees in my life. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Allow me to draw a picture of my elementary school. Salters Point Elementary School, to be specific, yet I could not tell you why it's called that. It's a pretty typical building, sort of grayish and red, exactly in the style that was supposed to feel modern and semi-futurist in the late 90s, early 2000s. I attended three years here, from grades three to five, and it was here that in the fifth grade, I had one of my more favorite teachers. Honestly, who knows how good or bad he really was, but he was unconventional and outspoken in a way that the whole group of us loved, and the memories have stuck nonetheless. His name was, slash, is, Mr. Stipek. I have no idea where he is now, but I'm going to talk extensively about his class for a moment today. I hope he's well. Anyways, Mr. Stipek loved to go on tangents about all sorts of things. He would talk a lot about his time living in New Zealand when he was in his early 20s, a trip he seemingly took on a whim. He would tell us a lot about cars that he found interesting and trauma from his family life. Mostly, he would tell us all about things that were hugely popular in the time that he was, quote-unquote, coming of age, if you will. Remember, as I was 10 years old, I had no frame of reference for when this actually was. However, I know that he was a huge fan of Butch Cassidy and seemed to have children much older than the children my parents had, which again was me, the 10-year-old. So, in trying to place his age in my memory, he probably was in his 20s, in the 60s or early 70s. That could be way off, but I was, again, 10. And even though the memories now are somewhat comical to me, then, it all seemed particularly normal and exciting. I can't really remember the reason, but for whatever it was, one day we were talking about science, and specifically space. While I'm sure the lesson began according to plan, Mr. Stipek had a habit of over-expounding on things above a fifth grade level. And so we were talking about the physics of moving in space. I remember how he seemed to relish telling us various concepts, and particularly that in space, there was no sound. Unbeknownst to that collection of ten-year-olds, this was all a build-up for a big reveal. You know those Star Wars films you guys love so much? Well, those films are completely unrealistic and silly. Wait a minute. I do love Star Wars, I thought to myself. What is he saying? He then dropped the hammer. You wouldn't hear anything in space. 
How could this be? I thought. Star Wars was a cornerstone of everyone's existence, as far as I knew, and the fact that he was challenging the integrity of its world building, and therefore of its merit, was a shocking development. This could not be true. But Mr. Stipek continued speaking, ignoring, yet all too aware of the ripples that had just been spread throughout his classroom. If you want to watch a film with accurate space depictions, you need to watch 2001 A Space Odyssey. Okay. Wait a minute. Now this was interesting. In my effort to have heard of every film ever made, a goal at the time I felt I was very close to reaching, thanks in large part to the new IMDB that my dad showed me, I even knew about scary films like The Shining or The Godfather. I had previously heard of the science fiction film 2001, but I thought it was just an old film that had gotten its predictions about technology hilariously wrong. Yet, Mr. Stipek's words and subsequent explanation about a scene featuring a silent explosion in space to combat a rogue AI named HAL 9000 echoed in my ears like a challenge, a dare to experience another level of cinema. So I decided to try it. I went to my mom and we went to the library, and soon I had a DVD copy of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, ready to show everyone that I was truly a fan of space films and of the cinema. I somehow convinced one of my friends to watch the film with me, which I'm not really sure how that occurred to be honest, and one Friday evening at this friend's house, we turned on his giant box TV set and put the DVD of 2001 A Space Odyssey into the player. I remember the immediate and vivid feeling of instant confusion. Sound was coming out of the speakers, but there was nothing on the screen. It was completely dark. We had seen the DVD menu, so I knew that the disc worked, but maybe the TV had broken? After a minute, I tried fast-forwarding, and it was still black for a while after that. But then when it finally did get to the images, something that was maybe a relief, it was not a space film, but a collection of monkeys playing with bones. And it went on forever. I could not believe it. What was going on? Nonetheless, we persevered, and when we finally got to the spaceships, they were using music that I'd only ever heard of as a joke from the Looney Tunes. And everything moved so deftly slow. Painstakingly slow. Insanely slow. What was Mr. Stipek talking about? I think we overall made it 30 minutes into the runtime of the film. However, we had fast-forwarded through a lot of the monkeys and a lot of the opening, so it was probably more like 15 minutes. We turned it off and did something else, and I left that day thinking Mr. Stipek had somehow made a crazy mistake. If this was what it took, I'll keep my Star Wars. It wasn't until I was 17 years old and about to graduate high school that I decided that before going out into the world, I needed to finally revisit that film that had defeated me back in the fifth grade. And so I went back to the library, and I found what was probably the same DVD from before, Packaged like a CD, but in a big styrofoam box with multiple discs flipping around inside. The DVD of 2001 A Space Odyssey. A few days later, I sat down and started again, well aware of the silence and the monkeys that would greet me this time. I still found it slow, but this time I held on. I tried to consider what the images were. I made it all the way through the opening, through the monolith discovery, through the house sequences, which were of course my favorite part and I was beginning to appreciate the film for its craft, though I still found it bizarre and very slow. Then it happened. Jupiter, or beyond the infinite. The following stream of colors and images were crazy, but then the actual ending occurred and I was completely mystified. I knew that I respected 
the experience. Maybe I even enjoyed it, but I was still very confused. I decided to Google something about it and soon decided I had some sense of what happened with a giant baby in the sky and decided definitively that 2001 deserved its classic acclaim for what it was and that I was certainly a fan. I stopped speaking ill of it and even included it on my list of favorites, yet it had not registered with me on an emotional or deeper level. I had never seen anything like it and that warranted praise from me. I didn't see 2001 for about three more years. We both did our own things. I went and lived in Russia while 2001, unbeknownst to me, was being prepared for a restorative re-release by Christopher Nolan. And that's where we met again, in a mostly empty IMAX theater on a random August Wednesday night. And it was then that 2001 and I truly fell in love. The images and sounds were impactful before, but on this screen they were unforgettable. The winding of the spacecrafts hypnotically moving through the void, the ambient chanting of the black monoliths, the chilling voice of Hal, and of course, the deep dive into the beyond, all seemed to wash over me in a way that they never had before. It was a profound experience. While this is partly a testament to the nature of a theatrical screening, this also was where I first began to understand something about avant-garde or non-conventional cinema. For the first time, I didn't just respect or recognize 2001, I felt it. I had an emotional and even spiritual reaction to the images that Kubrick had put on screen and from then on, it changed the way I approached cinema. I've since seen 2001 A Space Odyssey several more times and every time it remains a moving and powerful experience for me. So what is it then that I love about avant-garde or non-conventional cinema? And with that, I'm sure some would argue about including 2001 in the canon of the avant-garde. While that may be a topic that is related to our discussion today, it likely deserves more time, so maybe for another day. However, I think 2001 highlights these ideas well. Now, allow me to digress even further. The Russian Orthodox Church While a depiction of saints or angels in some form is an element of worship in most Christian denominations today, Russian Orthodoxy highlights something specific called icons. While not unique to the Pravoslavny Church, icons are all the same essential to this denomination. They may seem familiar, as icons are essentially images featuring drawings of various figures throughout the Christian canon, the Virgin Mary, the Apostle Peter, and of course, the central and titular Jesus Christ. Often adherents to Russian Orthodoxy will place these images in their homes, in their cars, in their businesses, all in hope of garnering blessing and safety from the respective saints depicted. However, I want to look into the very style in which icons are created. The faces and images that populate various icons are not ultra-real, or really very accurate. They feature elongated facial features, strange orientations of the body, and sometimes even imagery of an otherworldly nature. As such, to people who do not adhere to this religion, even to someone coming from a differing background within Christianity like me, these images may seem to be a little off-putting and not at all registering of any emotional or spiritual response. Yet, the very intention of the art reflects in those reasons. One of the hopes and goals of Russian Orthodoxy icons is to intentionally depict these holy figures in a way that is completely separate from anything you would see in our world and in our reality. Thereby, when a viewer approaches one of these pieces, what they behold can assist them in departing from this plane of reality, helping them to move to a different or higher plane, focusing their thoughts on something more spiritual. Thus, 
the images never tried to resemble realism, opting instead to lay out a wavelength of spirituality and hoping that adherents may meet it and join in their spiritual sermon. The beauty is found in the strangeness of the image and in the supplication to another realm of thinking and feeling. So what does all of that have to do with non-conventional cinema? Well, I am now going to talk about someone who is likely the most famous of all the avant-garde film artists, one Mr. David Lynch. While some may know him from his daily YouTube series where he picks a number from a jar at random with seemingly no other purpose and tells the weather in Los Angeles to the world, Lynch is of course a world-class director who has won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival and been nominated multiple times for Best Director at the Academy Awards. Yet, while his name may hold a place in most households, he is not exactly a household name, as he is known for making dark, brooding, often frightening films that are bizarre, strange, and always challenge the established conventions of filmmaking. Yet, one of the reasons I think David Lynch is one of the most powerful and greatest filmmakers ever, not that that's a fringe opinion, is in his mastery of tone. As trying to assign definitive meaning to the works of David Lynch is a pursuit of folly that many have fallen by, that is not my intention here today. Instead, I want to highlight something that I find at the core of Lynch's work that summarizes fully why I enjoy venturing into the realms of cinema that can be challenging. In short, as one wanders through the labyrinths of Lynch's films, often bombarded with a myriad of strange and frightening pictures, sounds, and edits, there's always a feeling and a tone to grab onto. Something that Lynch has laid through the center of every film he's made, and something that I find makes David Lynch not only a director that pushes the boundaries and seeks to make people uncomfortable, but places him among the most empathetic filmmakers of all time, and makes his films distinctly powerful. Now I should add, by stating he is an empathetic filmmaker is by no means claiming that the David Lynch experience is a family-friendly one, and it is perhaps not meant for everyone. However, he is a fantastic example of a mainstream artist who utilizes avant-garde imagery and sounds to emotional and meaningful use. Take Twin Peaks, for example. This show first aired in 1990 and was, at least initially, a massive hit. I first began watching Twin Peaks on Netflix without knowing much about it beforehand. It was also my first foray into the works of director David Lynch, and I was surprised to learn that when it originally aired, it was a hit. While it's true that the show has a pulpy and soap opera feeling at times, it is also full of constant deviations, surrealist imagery, and a complete reluctance to hold the hands of those viewing. It is not a shock that after the initial murder mystery comes to a conclusion, the series was soon cancelled, and the film Fire Walk With Me, released a year later, was also a monetary disappointment for similar reasons. It took 25 years for the series to quote-unquote, return, and a cult fan base, when in 2017, Lynch released Twin Peaks The Return. In the 18 hours of Twin Peaks The Return, and for that matter, in the approximately 40 hours of the entire show, I witnessed many things that did not make any sense. Plot lines that felt tangential, pictures that were frightening, and many characters that would just not do what I wanted them to. In many ways, this can make the experience frustrating and sometimes even monotonous. Yet, for a few reasons, Twin Peaks ends up being my favorite show of all time. At a certain point, just like with 2001, as I watched, I stopped trying to understand every specific thing that I saw on the screen moment for moment, opting instead to just try and feel the experience. To let everything wash over me and gain a clarity in their overall emotive intention. 
rather than in their plot-based ramifications. To instead of scrounge for their intellectual specificity, search for their wavelength. And by surrendering to the film, the images began to come together differently, and I was able to glimpse what it meant for me, and have an experience that was powerful and meaningful. Despite, yet also because of, all the wild images on the screen, for me, Twin Peaks emerges as a deeply empathetic and mournful experience of an innocent murdered by a dark world and the failures surrounding that loss. And in our world over here, a story like that can maybe remind us to care for each other a little more and try just a little harder to help those around us. Ultimately, the best thing about films that challenge the norm, push the barrier, and present the avant-garde is that in meeting the film where it stands, allowing the jump to occur, we can have a personal experience. My reasons for loving these things may not be anywhere near someone else's, but that's the beauty in the experience of cinema and art in general. We all bring what we have and we all leave with something else. And as we venture into lands unknown to ourselves, permitting the strangeness to sift through our consciousness, maybe we'll find something powerful there that just helps us to keep going in the lives we lead. I love non-conventional, surreal, and avant-garde cinema because while it may not always make sense intellectually, it can create a feeling that is specific to itself. It offers a ticket to somewhere else, sometimes lifting into another plane, sometimes looking down, but always into another realm. And then, once I'm in that other realm, I'll find something that then can remind me of what the actual world I'm living in is like, what people around me may be experiencing, what ills and joys we all share. And maybe that will help me just a little more to understand, to internalize, and then to try to help others along the way. Come back soon for a follow-up discussion on non-conventional and avant-garde cinema. Oh, Diane, I almost forgot. Got to find out what kind of trees these are. They're really something. <laughs>